I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools six-hour-long school committee meeting. Ross, good morning. I thought that Superintendent Skipper's opening report was terrific. Good morning, Jill. Yes, I agree that Superintendent Skipper's superintendent report was the highlight of the meeting last night. Most cogent. Um, Good word, cogent. Thank you. English major. Jill, so the superintendent went over a number of really timely topics and started with safety. So first, I want to acknowledge that BPS recently lost a student to violence. And it's just a terrible thing when we hear about a student being killed in Boston. It should never happen. We've heard about recent violence at the Burke High School. This has to stop. And we have to have the whole community just join and get out out of their homes and onto the streets and in front of our schools to make sure that our students are safe. I mean, I think that was part of Superintendent Skipper's point was that this is a collaboration with the mayor and with the police and with school officials and with the community at large to really support kids in the city. Having these supports in place help the district and the community address the needs of the whole child. And you've heard me speak about the whole child, the important components, academic, social, emotional, and physical well-being. These make up the whole child. These are what we are committed to support. And we also heard about a horrific attack on Jean McGuire in Franklin Park. And as she was walking her dog, Jean is just an unbelievable educator who has served Boston in so many ways and really changed the lives of so many people in Boston through her work on the school committee as the first black woman on the school committee, but also in her role at MECO, founding MECO and providing opportunity to so many students to go to school of their choice outside of Boston. And we, we should all feel safe and, and everybody should feel safe to be anywhere in the city. And, and we got to do better. Yeah. We just got to do better. Speaking of doing better, Jill, we also heard about transportation. And Superintendent Skipper provided a report last night about transportation. Um, so far in October, transportation is averaging 88% on-time bus arrivals for the morning and 85% for the afternoon. Um, We're still seeing a little bit of that dip in the afternoon with the congestion toward the end of the day. We heard again that we're about in the 80s for on-time performance, both for morning and afternoon, and that afternoon continues to be a problem. And that, in fact, we still have uncovered routes still. It's kind of crazy, though. I mean, given how much money the district pushed towards transportation this year in order to hire more people and train more people. And we still don't have enough monitors. There was a good public comment later in the night from a mother who was talking about getting an inordinate number of calls, her child not being able to go to school that day because there wasn't someone on the bus. The school year has just started and I have already received 13 phone calls that my bus is not coming because there is no monitor on my child's bus. That is not fair to families and students who have IEPs. We fight for our child to get an IEP and a great education. Now we have to fight for our child to even get on the bus to arrive. That is not fair. Yeah, so we heard from that parent about really about a bus monitor issue. And, right. and, and we, we continue to hear that if we don't have enough bus monitors, our students with disabilities are not able to get to school. And this is just not, it's not okay. Well, there's something wrong here that we didn't hear about, but like the incentives are misaligned here. Right. Like something's not the the transportation is not working because something on the busing side is incentivized incorrectly. If we can't get kids to school, Mm. I'm not sure why we have a 
like a school district. Like, well, it, quite like, honestly, the rest of the meeting didn't matter. Right. Now, I mean, if you can't get kids yeah. to school, that's a big problem. And let's get into this. So like, if we can't get kids into school, it leads to chronic absenteeism, mm -hmm. right? So like literally, if you can't get kids to school, we had this really long conversation last night about chronic absenteeism. And there's really concerning data about the percentages of students who are chronically absent from school. That means students are absent for more than 18 days out of a school year. And of chronically absent students, about 50% of those students are Latinx. Yeah. About 52% of those students are students with disabilities. There's a lot of good questions about this, right, from school committee members, mm -hmm. trying to drill down to like who the chronically absent students were mm -hmm. and are, mm -hmm. what schools are they in, are there potential mental health issues or, that are not being taken care of, are their families need extra support, like what is driving the chronic absenteeism. We didn't hear many answers around this. Well, it must have been frustrating for the superintendent because she had her team on call, right? These are the folks who are supposed to be crunching numbers for her so that she has information that gives her good data to set direction. And every time she asked a question, they didn't have an answer, right? We didn't know what the correlations were at all. There were, I mean, It feels like if you're going to put something like chronic absenteeism on the table, which is super important, it would be important if you want to facilitate a discussion among school committee for them to have accurate data so that they know what they're even discussing. And there, I think there's three parts of this that are, that are sort of really interesting that came up last night that weren't fully discussed, but certainly mental health mm -hmm. of our students, like ensuring that our students are okay, that their families are okay, and that they can come to school. Which Diego, the student member of the school committee mentioned. He Absolutely. mentioned it and it kind of like floated into the ether, but he made a very important point, I think, that it it's important at some point for the district to dig into. Like there are certain periods of time where people are absent, which are excused for medical reasons or whatever, where they may be out an extended period of time. Mental health is definitely a big portion there. There's definitely something we need to work on there. And then the the second point around chronic absenteeism that was made that wasn't fully discussed was really the culture of schools, mm -hmm. meaning like are schools places that are welcoming, that students feel a sense of belonging to, that they feel like they're being engaged, right, at those schools. And not much conversation around that. And then it, potentially, are there other incentives for students not to go to school? Are there economic incentives for students to essentially go work instead of going to school? And if, that, if that's a case, then we should be using ESSER money to, to deal with that. Right. But really no clear strategy around how to address this, but definitely the superintendent was making a clear case that she is concerned about this as one of her top priorities and it has to be addressed. And then Jill, also moving on, we, we heard it was a really interesting conversation about school choice last night where the district basically said, look, we don't really want to use any updated numbers on MCAS to talk about school performance this year. So school choice, we're going to give the data to families from 2019. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. And we're going to basically say to families, hey, in order for you to choose a school, you can use the data from 19 in making your decision about what schools you want your kids to attend. Important. Even though it might not be relevant. All right, completely. It could be, you know, school, we've seen um, last night, we saw the district present some data on some schools that have made drastic improvement since mm -hmm. 2019. Mm -hmm. And so parents should know that data. Mm -hmm. And also we've seen schools drop dramatically since 2019. And again, families should know that data. So Mr. Cadet Hernandez was really pushing on this issue of saying, look, how do we help families choose schools if you're using data from 2019? As a parent, the if I'm looking at 2019 data, I think it only holds true for me or even useful 
if I understand turnover at the school level. And so I'm also curious if it's possible or if we are considering presenting to families school turnover, specifically principal, and I think breaking it out, right? Principal in special education programming, in L programming, staff turnover, paraprofessional turnover, because that then helps me understand the, if 2019 and the schools barely had any turnover, I may decide, again, parent choice, that's the process, that like it gives me the information I need but if I see the principal's left, 30% of the staff is left, that's a quality measure as a, fit, a parent that I can say, this doesn't feel as useful. 2019 coupled with high turnover is probably not useful data. So then we moved on to public comment. There were a couple of different things that people came to the meeting to talk about. One was to support Higher Ground, which is a nonprofit in town. It's a terrific nonprofit that really supports families with a multitude of things, including housing and, and childcare and support for families who are going through hardship. And they do a great job. And it sounded like parents really appreciate the support. Totally. It's a very highly regarded program in Boston. It wasn't very clear what was happening here, but it, there's some relationship between BPS and Higher Ground that has suffered. Higher Ground is basically saying, hey, we want to have BPS's support, be it financial or otherwise. So we'll have to see if that changes in the coming meetings. We also heard from members of the ELL task force. We have name shifts here last night. So formerly the ELL task force, English right. Language Learner Task Force, but there's a new office in BPS that was the ELL office, English Language Learner Office, that's been rebranded to the Office of Multilingual and Multicultural Learners, okay. OMML. There's no head of the OMML department yet. There's an acting head of that department, but there is a new plan we'll discuss in a little bit. Right. And we did hear from the ELL task force last night that they support the overarching goals of that plan, mm -hmm. although they did express concern about how they will go about achieving those goals. But it basically said, hey, we like the ideas that you're going to be, be presenting here. We're not sure how you're going to execute on them. Right. And then there's a little discussion about the Green New Deal. A number of Sumner parents in particular showed up to testify. Yes. Yeah, so this is, we're going to see this issue over and over again, right? I mean, until it's been, until it's addressed, but Superintendent Caselius laid forward sort of a plan that was going to consolidate school communities mm -hmm. and it sort of got rolled into the Green New Deal, which is our new build BPS plan. Right. And rebranded. Rebranded. And yeah. we heard from Sumner parents again last night asking for more details, more engagement because they haven't heard much. Although they did say that they've had some communication with Superintendent Skipper which they really valued that communication with Superintendent Skipper, but they would like to know what to do next. Uh, Superintendent Skipper did commit in her superintendent comments to come back on the Green New Deal with a plan to the school community. Jill, this will have to come up again probably, in, I'm guessing, in, in January timeframe with the budget. And I expect that we'll probably see the Shaw community come back out again and, and advocate yeah, for their school right. and a number of other communities. And I think, you know, hopefully there's a larger vision here to help families understand what's going to be happening with their schools, and ultimately how all students actually get better services out of some plan. And we'll have to wait and see what happens. What I sense happening, at least in the meetings, is there is a discussion that seems to be acknowledging that there's going to have to be some consolidation of the school district, that the budget can't support the total number of schools. There are all of these soft landings last year. And so something's going to have to give. And, and it, it seems like it would make sense for the superintendent and the mayor to take advantage of that acquiescence 
and sort of start to put a strategy behind what was build BPS. Here's how we're going to make sure that every student in BPS graduates, gets into college or into the job of their choice. And, you know, with the set of attributes and here's what we're going to do with the buildings and the teachers and the professionals that are right. in place to support them. Jill, there was a good example of a building just recently opening, the Boston Arts Academy just mm -hmm. opened, yeah. and, and what an amazing facility. And every student deserves a facility like the Boston Arts Academy, and every student deserves a programming of a comprehensive high school, for example, right? So we heard from somebody last night, he was reporting on the number of music offerings and sports offerings in our in our high schools. Yeah. And just really amazing, like how every school has something different, right? And, and some schools have very little offerings. The high school in my neighborhood, the Jeremiah Burke, has but nine athletic teams, six AP classes. I couldn't find a foreign language class, and I could only find one reference to a visual arts opportunity and no musical instrument instruction whatsoever. Now, looking at Boston Public Schools athletics, Overall, they offer only 14 sports teams. Musical instrument instruction is limited and spotty at best. I'm having trouble seeing anything that looks like equity in this in these offerings for our students. All of our students deserve to have all of the offerings. Yeah. The challenge here will be how do you transition into that, right? And we're going to get into this in a little bit, but MCAS results came out and we saw a lot of small schools, Jill make a lot of significant improvement on MCAS, right? Mm -hmm. So like of the, you know, whatever, 20 schools or so that made significant imp improvements, a large number of them were small schools, yeah. right? So the question becomes for those small schools, what will it take to merge them or something, you know, with a larger school yeah. or merge them with other schools into maybe some new facilities, but maintain that feel of a small school feel where everybody knows each other and the cultures are strong and potentially they can all grow together into a, a larger school that has more offerings. Sure, but there's actually, we didn't see anything that said because they're a small school, they're performing better. And I think this is what, what last night's meeting highlighted for me is that there is no map of the district and it would just behoove the district to say, here are the schools, here are the students in those skills. Here's how many of them are new to the country. Here's how many of them are multi-language learners. Here's how many of them have special needs. Here's how many of them did well on English, but not math. Here's, here's the teachers. Here's how many vacancies we still have. Here's the leader. You know, here's what the successes and weaknesses of that leader. We don't have any of that mapped. So we have no idea actually what the correlations are between the success or failure of a particular school on a set of scores, you know, for MCAS there's just no way to know. We never seem to ask the principal, like, what's, what'd you do? Like, what's, what's working in your school or not working? Let's get into that for a second around like what's working in a school, right? Yeah. And let's jump to the first report of the meeting, which yeah. was the MCAS results. What we heard last night with MCAS results is, is essentially, you know, BPS is kind of performing along with, or a little bit better trending a little bit better than the state and other urban districts, okay? Right. So like where they were in 2019, they've either dropped less than the state or other urban districts, or they've made a little bit of improvement in areas, whereas the state and other urban districts may not have made improvements. So mm -hmm. BPS is sort of like the trend line is sort of flat, right? We've seen some schools leave the bottom 10% of, of schools in, in the state and some schools join. So we still have about 32 schools are in the bottom 10% of the state. It's about, you know, a third of our schools are in the bottom 10% of our state. Yeah. We've seen average growth 
amongst many of our subgroups and our students in grade level. So we see about you know, typical growth is 40 to 60%, with 50% being one year's worth of growth. And pretty much all of our subgroups and grade levels are making average growth, somewhere mm -hmm. between 40 and 60. Mm -hmm. The only problem with this, what we saw last night, Jill, was like there wasn't much discussion about the widening achievement gaps and opportunity gaps that we're seeing. So we did absolutely have some subgroups who performed and made more growth and performed much better than other subgroups. And we saw an increasing gap among students. And we also see very low proficiency across the board, right? So we're seeing in, in many areas about 20% proficiency rate which is not okay to have 20% of our kids proficient. So while there is some level of like, hey, look, we're kind of just doing the same across the board mm -hmm. since 2019, we haven't really seen massive problems. Mm -hmm. We have seen a larger achievement gap. And then there was a bunch of like sort of appendices that were produced last night yeah. that showed some schools making dramatic gains mm -hmm. in, in some areas, right? Yeah. And, and it, there wasn't any discussion around this, right? So right. rather... What we heard last night was the senior deputy superintendent saying, here's what we're going to do. You know, because of these data, we're going to have an equitable literacy strategy. Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure that our students are reading grade level content and that they're engaged in cognitively demanding work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we heard that on cycle kind of over and over again for a long time in from this report. From central office. From central office staff, right? Yes. So all of the focus was on, like we central office, through our coaches, will make sure that every school is doing, quote unquote, doing equitable literacy. As and long that, as they do what we say. Right, so so there was very, it was, the, the approach had nothing to do with what, like, hey, let's go look at yeah. some schools who have made dramatic improvement over the past number of years. Yeah. And in particular, improvement for students who are in subgroups who are underserved, right? So like, let's look at, at our black boy subgroup, right? right? And say, what schools are making the most improvement for that group? And what are they doing? Like, how do we learn from them? Right. How, how do we see, like, how do we know, how do we expand their practice, right? No discussion around... You know, for example, I'll take the Winship School in Brighton, which has made dramatic improvement mm -hmm. over the past number of years. And the Grew School in Hyde Park, which has gone from a turnaround school to improve and making dramatic improvement. No discussion about what they've done or how they're doing it. Very much the approach here, Jill, is the district leadership will take a more of a command and control, a centralized approach to all schools, treat them all the same and say they all must do the same thing. And that somehow will dramatically increased performance. It was nothing justifying what that magic pill is. But, you know, it, we did see school committee members, including the chair, poking at that. And so in particular, chairperson Jerry Robinson had a great point about what do we know about schools that are succeeding or particularly not succeeding. And I think member Cardet Hernandez, you know, brought up ESSER funding again, said, you know, it should be tied to this conversation. We've got hundreds of millions of dollars to spend still, how we should be deploying them against, right. you know, these sorts of, if we understood what the problems were. We did hear that. And we, the response from the district on that was, hey, we have a free tutoring program called Paper, which we've had for a few years. And if parents can log in 24-7 and use Paper. So we do tutoring and we spend extra money on tutoring. And if only the parents would sort of take advantage of it, yeah, we're, we're already offering it. There was, I mean, it was a very concerning 
approach Jill and the, with with sort of the centralized view of things and all, treating all schools as the same. Yeah. And it's a major shift from particularly Superintendent Chang when he spoke a lot about bright spots, right? He was always talking about how do we learn from the bright spots in our district mm -hmm. and expand those across a district. That's a very validating approach, right? Mm -hmm. That's an approach of honoring what the what people are doing in the classroom, what's happening in schools and expanding and supporting that. And that's the job of central office. What we heard last night was much more of a, of a centralized punitive approach. Like, like you must, we if, if schools only did what we tell them to do, they'll be successful. And there's going to be a big disconnect here, Jill, particularly from Superintendent Skipper. I mean, Superintendent Skipper was an autonomous school leader, right? She founded Tech Boston. She was all about innovation in her school-based leadership. That has been her philosophy. And she has people underneath her who it seems have a different philosophy. So we'll see how this tension plays out over over the coming weeks. Yeah. The if only thing reminds me of the early days of e-commerce where people would build sites to sell things and then wonder why no one showed up. <laughs> right. Like it That's just. Right. Yeah. Right. If only. I, if only. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on. There was a report about a multilingual and multicultural education, a strategic plan was presented. You want to just kind of top line it? What what was the strategy <laughs> sure. before we get into it? Okay. So there's a, as we discussed, there's a new department, the Office of Multilingual and Multicultural Education. So Jill, what we know is half the students in Boston Public Schools, their primary language is not English. Yeah. Okay. Of those students, a third of those students are actively receiving support around English language learning. Right. A smaller percentage are formally have received that support. Right now, it, too often, students would potentially lose their native language and their native culture as part of this process. Historically, so, so students would be maybe placed in classrooms where their native language wasn't spoken. They were potentially with a teacher who didn't who wasn't able to communicate with them, and they would sort of learn English along the way. What we heard last night was a commitment from the district that every student who speaks a language other than English as their primary language would become bilingual. So their native language would continue to be developed and they would become proficient in English at the same time, therefore essentially graduating high school with the seal of biliteracy. So they'd be biliterate in their native language and in, and in English at least. Right. And that this would happen essentially at every school. So every school would transition into a bilingual school. We have a couple of bilingual schools that are very effective in Boston. One is the Hernandez School, which is a bilingual, uh, two-way bilingual school, the Hurley School in the South End, again, Spanish two-way bilingual school. The Quincy teaches Mandarin, I believe, and Cantonese at, at the Quincy. Mm -hmm. But the suggestion is that every school that you're just talking every about. Every school would become essentially a bilingual school. Right. And Every and the, Jill, there's about 80 different languages that yep. are spoken in Boston. Of our, of our students speak in about 80 different languages. Right. It, it's a very nice idea, Jill. But and if this was the only thing the district was going to do for the next 10 years, potentially the district could figure this out. Although it would change a lot of things. It would change student assignment. It would change a whole lot of things. But if this is like one of the of the multitude of priorities, like last school committee meeting, we heard about inclusion and that every school would be an inclusive school and, and, and they would serve students with all different disabilities in an inclusive setting. And, and they're going to transition into this over the next number of years. Right. Now, 
we today we're hearing that every school will be a bilingual school and that every student will be able to be biliterate in the school. The details of this, Jill, there's no details. The implementation plan, there's very little information about implementation plan. The measures they presented last night weren't clear. Yeah. There was there was no baseline data. It was essentially like, hey, we're going to increase the number of teachers who speak other languages. There's no clear plan for any of this. But the idea is a nice idea. You know, one thing that that I think is really important to understand about as we watch Superintendent Skipper and her team develop is cohesion between the different departments and cohesion among strategy. And that, in fact, if we hear last meeting about every school will be inclusive and this meeting about every school will be bilingual, that in fact, you know, there would be some sense making between those. Like, how do we, how are we spending our money? How are, uh, about our people? Like, how are we developing, who are we hiring to do this? And how are we spending our time to make sure it happens? And so let me just take one example Yeah, this. this isn't, that wasn't really a strategy. One of the key challenges of this uh, that was asked last night by a school committee member was Ms. LaPera, who said, well, how will we hire we're having a hard enough time hiring people. Yeah. How will we hire staff who speak all these different languages and ensure that students are in classrooms with staff that honor the native language? It's not just the paras, it's not just the teachers, but it's also the admin, it's also the central staff leadership team and, and what that uh, language and those backgrounds, how they're reflected. And the answer was, well, we'll work with with different universities and pipelines and so on. But we know that that's not like that's not well, a real you know, strategy. You ran HR right, in the these, district. The, the, that's these things. Now we're looking for we're looking for teachers that are content certified, which we don't have enough of. We're looking for teachers who are represent the racial and cultural diversity of our students, which we don't have enough of. Right. We're looking for teachers who have a degree in special education which we don't have enough of. We're looking for teachers who speak all the languages of our students, which we don't have enough of. Well, what are we going to prioritize? Right. right? Like what are right. we going we have to prioritize something. Right. And not we we if we don't have enough people in our workforce period who want to be in our schools, we got to figure out what our strategy is amongst like who we hire, who we train and how we do this work. And none of that was discussed last night in a in a very clear way. Right. So it wasn't really a strategy that we heard last night. It was a goal. From there, based on a number of questions and actual implementation, there'll have to be a strategy and then a tactical plan to get the district to where it needs to be. So tonight, Jill, Superintendent Skipper and the school committee are having a retreat. Right. And they're talking about, I believe, the strategic plan. And I don't want to get into this, but it's very unclear what the district's plan is, right? We've seen Superintendent Caselius present her goals, which had a lot of measures that were not um, really measurable. grounded, measurable. Right. We've seen the school committee release their strategic vision that has actually been challenged by the new members of the school committee saying, are these actually our strategic goals? Yeah. And then we see last night, here's a plan for the Office of Multilingual Learners, and here's a bunch of goals. Right. And And we heard last meeting about here's our goals for inclusion or inclusive practices across our district. It, it, it's going to be really important to have a sense here of what our priorities are. Yes. It, you know, but the superintendent's been in her role for what, two weeks now, officially. And she's running a meeting tonight where she'll start to shape the strategy for the district. And what happened last night was great in that she asked good questions. She responded to good questions by asking her team to provide the data 
that that they needed. She included good ideas from school committee, it, you know, into what would eventually be outcomes. She's being very thoughtful about this, but it does. It was very apparent that it's a very big job to try to move the district in in the right direction and create some momentum. Jill, first and foremost, I think the school committee members again last night asked really good questions. They did, and as we pay attention to the role of the school committee. They are asking the right questions. They're still not receiving the answers, but they are they're continuing to ask the right questions and, and push for clarification, which is really great to see. Yeah. My advice to the superintendent would be pay attention to prioritization, ensuring that you know what the priorities are and direct your resources to those priorities. And two, pay really close attention to the schools and our teachers in our classrooms. And they are the unit of change and change very rarely comes out of that central office. The best role for the central office is to highlight the great practices and support schools in spreading those. And I would just offer caution where we see some of the key central office administrators kind of taking a really centralized approach here, which I think is going to backfire on the district in the future. And parents want to be informed. Parents want to know where the district is going so that they know where, which questions they need to ask and how to support. That's right. (laughs) That's what happened last night at Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have concerns about how BPS is serving your child or your family, please send us an email at podcast at shawfoundation.org. And if you'd like to share a thought that we may use in a future episode, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-261-5904. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.